0: You're listening to Under the Radar Podcast, where artists share their childhood memories, musical inspirations, and the milestones that help shape them and their music. I'm your host, Celine Teoblocki. Welcome to Episode 6. We're speaking to Fran Healy from Scottish band, Travis. I
1: fell and threw it up, broke the wheel and tore it up, I can't even say why. All my past is sure up even on my door won't stop. Couldn't lie, so I made it up, and I can't even say why, I can't even say why.
0: At the turn of the new millennium, Travis was one of the biggest indie rock bands in the UK. In the come-down after the Britpop Wars, it was their quiet second album, The Man Who, that achieved commercial and critical success. It won the Best British Album at the 2000 Brit Awards. Frontman Fran Healy also won the prestigious Ivor Novella Award for Best Songwriting – The album spawned many memorable hits, including Driftwood, Writing to Reach You, Turn, and their biggest, Why Does It Always Rain on Me. Their follow-up, The Invisible Band, sealed their reputation as one of Britain's best-loved bands. Now 25 years since Fran Healy, Dougie Payne, Andy Dunlop, and Neil Primrose first set foot in a rehearsal room in Glasgow, they've released their ninth album, simply titled Ten Songs. Given Fran's ever-sunny disposition, today he's not even letting the pandemic slow him down. It is then surprising to hear him open up about the darker aspects of his upbringing that lie at the root of his ambitions, from the longing and insecurities he felt as a kid to more recent emotional turmoil. In this episode, Fran reveals how it's all been distilled into these 10 songs and why he needed to write this album on his own.
2: Hey, my name is Fran Healy, and I'm the singer of the band Travis. Our latest album is called Ten Songs. Lockdown has been, I've actually had probably the most creative time I've ever had in my life. I got back on the 14th of March from the studio. We were recording the album in London. I sung the last vocal on the 13th of March, changed my flight because I had a feeling that things were going to go a bit weird. Um, I was supposed to be there for a lot longer. Sung Sung my vocal, my last vocal, changed my flight, went to bed, got up and went to the airport and flew back to America and then went into quarantine for 14 days. And while I was in quarantine, we mixed the album. We mastered the album. Then I came out of quarantine and I've been making videos and movies and I've shot all the artwork for our album. Everything every every single thing visual that you see this album, I did it homemade.
0: Wow. You've been incredibly productive in lockdown. Yeah,
2: yeah. Really, really productive. Um the we, we made a video, me and my son made a video for um the first single, which is um, which is really great. Can you hear that in the background? No, you probably can't, but my cat is very excited about something. You can hear a, If you can hear a cat, then his name is Goose, and he's very annoying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, we weren't able to get into a studio, so we apologise for cat sounds and other less-than-ideal audio conditions. So you grew up in Glasgow. What was the name of the area you grew up in and what was it like growing up there?
2: Um, it wasn't so great. I, I grew up in a place called Postle Park. Um, Postle Park is spelt like fossil with a P. It was built, I think, for working class people, council houses. My, my whole family uh, comes from there. Or my mum moved away from there when she was like older. And then when her and my father divorced, she moved back up and we moved to that area again. And it was just horrible. It's a a really not a very nice part of Glasgow at that time. Very poor. I got really badly bullied a lot at school and kind of terrorised. I was like three years old to about eight years old. And then we moved to the south side of Glasgow, which, which is really where, for me, very lucky because I was exposed to middle class kids, kids whose parents had jobs, kids who were kind of aspiring to maybe go to university. I didn't even know university existed. I didn't know what that was. But I, I, got, I just got lucky. And uh, so when we moved to the South Side, I, I was exposed to lots of very cool stuff. I got a couple of really, really important teachers. I was still in touch with the teacher I had uh, when I was eight. She really looked after me. I had a couple of other teachers through the years. A good teacher is so much more important than the subject that they teach There was one summer, it was the summer of 1985, and my mum called me from the window and she said, do you want to go to Blackpool with Auntie Babs and Uncle Bill and your cousin? And I was like, sure. And she said, well, pack your bags, they're coming in half an hour. I was like, oh my God, because Blackpool's this really cool place in Britain. We'd been there for a holiday once before and had lots of fun. I was around 11 going on 12, actually, going to secondary school at the end of that summer. So it was a very, very big hormonal cauldron It was also the summer of Live Aid. Boris Becker won Wimbledon for the first time when he was 16 years old. The Breakfast Club, the film, was out. Simple Minds had a a song on the radio called Don't You Forget About Me. I fell in love for the first time because we had a school trip. All of these feelings, that was probably one of my happiest memories. This was that summer, the summer of 85.
0: Nice. Um, What is a memory from your childhood that sort of haunts you that you maybe don't even like to think about very often?
2: Oh, um talking about like the bit before where i was getting bullied the feeling of knowing that you're you're leaving security to go into the opposite is a horrible feeling to to have to have when you're young and i would get chased every single day these these guys knew i was coming and they would see me and they would get me i would have to get up like 2 hours earlier and go, walk to school like a really really long route so that they wouldn't know how I was going to get to school. My mum ended up obviously going to the school to complain to the to the teachers uh, and she went to the school of the other boys and the head teacher said to her we're really sorry there's not a thing we can do about these these guys. They're very troubled children and and we can't do anything about it. I, I had a really really shitty few years. I think that was between the ages of six and eight. And then when we moved to the south side of the city, it was just like paradise, peaceful and people were nice.
0: You grew up with your mom and your grandmother and you said they were uh, huge influences on you. It's like, how did they help you? And also, you know, who, who sort of got you to like be creative about what you were going through or just kind of introduce you to things like I know you draw and you write music and I and that might have come a bit later, but. Who sort of encouraged you to do things like that? Or was it more your own thing? It
2: was my own thing. My grandfather, he Mm -hmm. was good at drawing. He would draw quite a lot. And he was the man in my my life. He had quite an influence on me. His sister, she was a really, really talented artist. And his brother was a really good drawer as well. So there was was always talk of drawing, drawing, drawing. So I drew a lot when I was really young and I was good at it. Some kids will be funny to to sort of draw attention to themselves. And, and at school, you know, my, my thing was art. I guess, I mean, as a grown-up, you think you crave something. I realised when I became a father, it was, it was that I didn't have a dad, you know. You, you crave that huge bit of uh, validation that just isn't there. So I guess, you know, it's not great having only one parent, but might actually work out quite good in, in a lot of ways because I wouldn't have found art to draw attention to myself and I wouldn't have needed attention, you know. I mean, I look at my son and he's happy and that's all you really want for your children. But um, I don't know what he's going to do or be when he's, when he's older and, and he's got his own path, but he definitely has had a different upbringing than I have. So, um, yeah, I, I got into art that way. And then music, I I just seemed to... It was just something that I was... i I did and singing was like you say it was it was later um it came later and and i really i only just sung because no one else would sing boys don't like singing they'd much rather play the guitar or play the drums singing's a bit you know a bit like feminine for boys maybe sometimes and and I, i didn't have a problem with that so i um I sung, and that's why I got into bands. But weirdly, my one biggest passion has always been visual, not singing. The music's like a, a accidental thing for me. I I was good at it. I could do it, and but I, I'm much better at visual stuff, and I get much more job satisfaction.
0: When did you start writing music?
2: I got an acoustic guitar when I was 13 because I saw Roy Orbison on a TV show, singing Pretty Woman. Something about him, this image of this guy with dark glasses, dark suit, big red guitar. And that song, it grabbed me, and I I asked my mum if I could change my Christmas present from whatever to a, a guitar, and immediately started writing songs. I tuned it to what I now know as an open chord. So I could put my finger up and down the neck and then be able to play basic blues songs. But I did start writing immediately, so I started sort of writing songs when I was 14. And I think before that, my mum said I was good at writing poetry. I found some poems that I wrote when um, I must have been maybe 9 or 10. And they're good. So I definitely had a way with words the music came secondary but i think for me songwriting and being in a band that was my ticket out of poverty i either go to art school and be a painter which I went to art school to be a painter. And the band started around about the same time as that. But it was one or the other, and, and the band sort of won. I had a feeling I could probably do better with that because I never really knew how to finish a painting, but I knew how to finish a song. But The motivation for it was was pure survival. It was just, I don't want to be poor. I, I just really don't want to be poor. I look at, very often read broadsheet newspapers and you see the middle classes, and they don't. They none of them know what that feels like. When I, when I release records, and I see you know you get reviews or you do interviews, and you know that the person who's talking to you or talking about you has never known that feeling. They 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 they've, they've not known that feeling of being poor or not having money. Is it's a fucking horrible feeling. I think that's that's a big motivation. Our our business is just full of kids who were lucky enough to have disposable income. But my life depended on, you know, me making this work. So that's why I had to
0: work, you know. (laughs) Travis go on to release The Man Who, their breakthrough record, produced by Nigel Godridge, best known for his work with Radiohead, It goes on to be one of the year's biggest selling records and a UK Top 50 album of all time. and early 2000s. I moved to London from Singapore. I got there as a girl from the equator into, like, British autumn... And I was like miserable and it was cold and it was mm. just the weather wasn't great. And I remember watching you on top of the pop sing When Does <laughs> It Always Rain Or I mean, It was like, yeah. the, you know, I think it was like the first big time that you were on TV. And also there was something so special about being there at the very beginning. It was your second album. It was like, you know, this big rise. But for you mm-hmm. at that period, you know, what are some of your most cherished memories in terms of these songs, you know, that... They had the sort of reach on people. Where did these songs come from, and then how it kind of resonated with everybody on such a huge level, and also like maybe just how it changed your life. It meant that you didn't have to be poor anymore.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I'm very, very like like super powered person. Like I, I have a like a very very powerful battery, creative battery inside. Of me, if I put my energy onto something i I'll, I'll generally it it will happen it will just just happen because i 'm just that type of person i won't stop until it happens around about the time of the man who we we 'd done good feeling was the first album which hadn't really made a dent in the charts or anything really apart from really the the, the last the real the, the last release was an e p called more than us and did actually get to number 16 in the charts and that was quite cool and encouraging but we we toured a lot we'd played i think 240 shows um over that first album we toured with every band including oasis nothing nothing would happen nothing was happening i didn't know this but apparently there was talk in the industry of of us being dropped because So much had been invested in us, um, time and money and all that, and it just hadn't paid off. We were lucky enough to have a brilliant Mm -hmm. A&R guy who believed in us called Andy McDonald. He signed us to his new label, Independiente. Uh, Andy had signed the band The Laz with There She Goes. He signed Paul Weller, he signed Portishead, he signed Gabrielle, he signed The Beautiful South, he signed The House Martins he had a very interesting taste and we fitted right into that and he believed in us we took a year off and I wrote some songs we started recording them in, in France at the house of this producer called Mike Hedges and in a big chateau in, in 1998 and then we came back from France with mm-hmm. Why Does It Always Rain in Me Turn and a couple of other bits and pieces She's So Strange I Think Maybe and then we met Nigel but we'd met Nigel before that, Nigel Godrich. That whole period of writing and recording was really like, we were completely in the dark with absolutely no thought about it being huge or, or anything. If you'd told me a year earlier uh, what we were about to start doing was going to be one of the biggest selling albums of all time in the United Kingdom, I would have told you just, you were crazy. We'd, we recorded it all and we mastered it and we put out the first single... And that feeling of Writing to Reach You being on the radio sounded good, sounded different than other other bands. A lot of journalists didn't like the album because they expected us to keep on rocking like our first album, but we didn't. It was a very quiet record. So Writing to Reach You came out, then Driftwood came out. Everything is open, nothing set in stone Rivers turn to
1: ocean, oceans tide you home. Home is where the heart is, but your heart had to roam Drifting over bridges, but never to return, Watching bridges burn.
2: It sounded amazing on the radio. I thought Driftwood was going to be huge, but much bigger than it was. And um, I had a phone call with our record company guy who wanted to strip a new song onto The Man Who called Coming Around and make that the next single. And I was like, you can't do that. We, I really don't want to do that. And he said, well, what's the next single going to be? And I said, why does it always rain on me? Because it's going to be Summer. It's going to rain. And my, my, my thought was, this is how desperate and how desperate all bands are. Don't, don't ever never forget, even big bands, we're all desperate because everybody wants to catch that little gust of wind that helps you. There's only maybe two gusts of wind every year and you're all these little boats out on the lake. One of those boats is going to catch that gust. So we we were desperate we were going like how are we going to do it and I was like well Wimbledon it's going to rain at Wimbledon and they'll play we could maybe plug them that song and pl- they they might play it and it might go on the radio and blah 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 Eventually I think Radio 1 had been sort of interested in the band and, but not really committed to us with this one song they went okay okay we'll we'll play it we'll we'll give it a big push and that was around about the time of Glastonbury and we went to Glastonbury and played a very, I thought, mediocre set. Seeing it now actually it wasn't, it was an amazing set we played a great gig and it rained, it rained during Why Does It Always Rain On Me? That was the moment And
0: That was the gust of wind.
2: That was the gust of wind, it was a huge gust of wind Why
0: does it always rain on me Even when the sun is shining
1: I can't avoid the
0: Travis, the band, was named after Harry Dean Stanton's anti-hero in the 1984 cult film Paris, Texas. The band had actually been formed at art school in 1990 when Fran was training to be a painter. Dougie, his best friend, trained as a sculptor. And he still does portraiture today. Neil met Fran in the local scene in Glasgow before joining the band. The foursome have now been together for almost 25 years. And as each of them got married, had children, and Fran relocated from London to Berlin, then Los Angeles, their close friendships and unique chemistry have remained their bedrock. So when you first met them, I understand there were other people in the band who got like effectively kicked out or left the band. (laughs) Evicted. um and then um but as travis as a band of the four of you you've been incredibly loyal to each other when neil had that terrible accident years Mm -hmm. ago um i mean could you take me back to that day were were you there and like sort of did it occur to you at that point that maybe he might not survive never mind the band like it sounded like it was pretty dire
2: it was a pretty dire night so that whole thing came about, we had a bit of a band meltdown before then where everyone couldn't take any more. We'd done a lot of work and I was, I was really, really pushing and I was relentless, um, but the other guys were flaking. They were just like, I can't do this anymore. And so we stopped and then uh, we had a meeting with our manager, I could recall it so clearly, sitting in this really fancy restaurant, the OXO Tower restaurant in London. And he had three envelopes on the table and he's like, I know you don't want to play any more shows, guys, but these three offers have come in and I think you should do them. It'd be a nice way to, to wrap up The Invisible Band. And one was a gig in Iceland, one was a gig in France, and one was two V Festival shows. And they were great. They were really easy. We were all had a a month off by that point, so we were all feeling really fine about doing a couple of shows. So we did it. We said yes. So we went to Iceland and did the first bunch of shows and that was amazing. We, we, the show was just a small part of the trip. They, they flew us over and we, we played the show and we, we went. We did lots and lots of activities that were quite dangerous. We went ice buggying on glaciers and like almost falling down giant crev- crevasses. We went to the edge of the European tectonic plate. That was great. Then the next day we went to France. I think we, we got in, it was in the middle of nowhere. We played the show. We are going to have a few days off after this, this show. So um, everyone got drunk, um, and I, but I didn't want to. I'm not a big drinker, so I just went back to the hotel. I woke up at two or three in the morning. There was no uh, water anywhere, so I went downstairs. It was dark, there was no one around, and our, one of our crew came out of the darkness and said, "Niels died. I was like sorry? And he's like, Neil died, but we brought him back to life. So what had transpired was they'd all gone out, got got really drunk, came back to the hotel, they were all sitting by the pool and someone threw a a glass into the pool. Neil jumped into the pool to to get this glass and, and the pool was only two and a half feet deep and he thought it was deep and so he jumped in full force and smashed all of his spine, broke his neck and became unconscious and just floated on top of the water he was on top of the water for a long time and the guys were all like they all thought he was kidding on they were all shouting brian jones you know like the rolling stones guy that died in the pool then dougie said to our guitar tech like nick go go and see what's wrong with neil nick jumped into the pool fully clothed and lifted neil's arms up and neil was neil was gone So they dragged him out of the pool, unconscious. His lips were blue, his face was grey. Just by by luck, this is the luckiest night any of us had, I think, especially Neil. Uh, Just by chance, our our sound engineer uh, knew CPR and he resuscitated Neil by the side of the pool, brought him back to life, made his heart start beating again. Another big piece of luck Neil had that night, or he would be in a wheelchair right now, was that about 120 kilometres away from where we were was a hospital that had pioneered the very procedure which would save Neil's legs and arms. Neil sustained the same injury as uh, Christopher Reeves, you know, the, the Superman character guy that fell off his horse and never, ever walked again. And so they they dropped him in a helicopter at this hospital and saved his life. He was back behind the drums within four months, even though he shouldn't have been... <laughs>
0: Oh my God, what a crazy time. It's been said that all you need to know about Travis is that Chris Martins once described you guys as the band that invented Coldplay, Um, but there's also this other narrative out there, right? That, um, when this happened, it was like Coldplay, there was a space kind of left open and, and while you were going through this with Neil, um, and the band and you guys had to cancel a couple of tours, a couple Mm -hmm. of festival gigs that maybe Coldplay came in and like took your crown in some way, mm-hmm. you know, or maybe just enough of a break yeah. that allowed them to then go on to be like the so-called biggest band in the world. I mean, how do you mm-hmm. feel about that narrative?
2: I think going back to that time, another thing that, that definitely changed everything, it changed music, it changed our, our sort of trajectory, was not just um, Neil's accident. We, dr- we, we released our uh, third album, The Invisible Band, and 9-11 happened. And we were about to do our big, you know, tour in, of America and it was, we were like that close to, and we'd worked like right up until that point. Or the whole plan had been work radio, work, work, work. We'd knocked on every single door um, on, on radio all across America. And, um, and then we, that was during the, the, the Man Who and then we went into Invisible Band and then 9-11 happened. And then everything just stopped. Everything stopped for for like three, four months in America, anyway. And so you almost like wrote that off. And then Coldplay came around after that, and we were we were off the road.
0: This is the other thing that always follows you around, like that you're a nice bunch, and you know. And I can't hold. It against you because especially given the state of the world there's so many like terribly not nice horrid people that if there is a band out there that's known as nice it's not a bad thing but like you've pointed out before as well it's like in rock and roll sometimes nice is equated to dull and i love the way you try to address that in your documentary almost fashionable this is a movie about travis a band i never really liked and never really thought much of
2: Yeah. This is Frank Healy from the band Travis. This is a bit out of the blue, but we're making a documentary.
1: We're going to Mexico, and I wondered if you'd be into being the interviewer
0: for it. Um... So, off I went to Mexico. I can't imagine that I'm going to be thrilled watching... A Travis show I'm not necessarily going to be bored but it's probably one where I'm going to be taking a couple of trips to the bar I mean I don't know how many bands would take a music journalist who doesn't like their music and put them in the center of their documentary if you can just like you know go through like how did you meet him and uh, decide to go down on that path And like, and were you happy with how it turned out in the end? Did you have in your mind from the very start, you knew how this was going to play out?
2: I didn't really know, but I had a feeling that it would be fine because I I do feel that if you don't look at anything closely enough, you can be forgiven for having certain opinions about it. And I think Travis being nice, for instance, I think personally, I think it's these days it's radical, pretty radical to be nice to be a decent person with good with good manners and that behaves in a in a decent way this is how i was brought up um this is very very scottish as well i think that we're just in an era of meanness there's a lot of meanness going around and i um, I wonder like why is why is that happening i don't know anyway it's radical to be cool and nice and i think why change i wanted to bring that that journalist on the road with us because to me he represented everything that not just Travis, have with, with journalism and critics, but I think every band has uh, a slight bone to pick with these people because I, I know for a fact that when you're a critic, you're not given any time to actually live with a record. How can you really make a, a balanced judgment on something? So what they generally do is they they listen to the record, but they've already made their minds up what they're going to say. If it's if it's a big band like Travis, who have they've got like nice big green tick um, slightly boring big green tick, they've already made that decision. And I always felt like this band that they thought we were was there was from their own imagination because my band are not like that. You know, we're we're an art school band We're we're cool, we're cultured and we're very entertaining to be around. And anyone that gets close to us is is always very charmed by it. We're we're a very nice, charming, interesting bunch of people to spend an evening with. So I I thought it was a calculated risk <laughs> to bring this journalist with us. I knew that I'd met him um, before that, and that was the reason I I sort of brought him because he'd said to me that specifically when I met him, that he wasn't a fan of our band. So he came and it turned out good. And it's a very nice portrait of our band. I think the other reason why I I made that is because nobody really understands our band. They think they do. I'm the only person that can really tell that story better than any journalist. But I thought, why not bring a journalist into it? Because then you get this other angle. And it's not just this, here's a band, here's their past, here's their present, and here's all the stuff that happened in between, which is very uh, template, cookie-cutter way of making a, a documentary.
0: After the success of The Man Who and The Invisible Band, Travis never quite reclaimed those heights again. Regardless, they kept making music, and their devoted fan base continued to grow globally. Their next big album would be 2007's The Boy With No Name. By this stage, they had a large enough presence in America to have Ben Stiller, a fan of theirs, for a cameo in their music video for Closer. was written as Fran was becoming a father. As the gust died down and he prepared for fatherhood he was happy for other members in the band to help with the songwriting on subsequent albums. But with 10 songs something had shifted for Fran. In the middle of a daydream In the
1: corner of my mind I can hear it in the slipstream Slipping in and I
0: Start writing this album and why? It, it seems like a lot of sad parts in there and talking about the passage of time.
2: Um, there's a lot of time in all of my songs. I'm fascinated with time, the elasticity of time, the, the way that time moves. Time doesn't exist, it's not a real thing. It doesn't, it's just a thing that we've invented to get us to the bus stop. Uh, so I'm interested in time. Uh, I started writing this f- four years ago. Ten songs. uh, There's actually about two hundred songs that these ten songs come from. Yeah, there's there's a lot of. I I did a lot of writing for for this record. I I just felt that here's the truth. I sort of checked out of Travis for the past fourteen years. Not not because I didn't like Travis, but because I became a dad. And like to go back to the thing I spoke about earlier. I never had a I never had a dad so when I became a dad I realized oh my god holy shit I, I'm this person for this person and I so I took my battery out of Travis and stuck it into my my son so Travis sort of ticked along and it can you know you can just tick tick along but very recently you know when as you will know yourself being a mother of a 13 year old there comes a moment when they, they, they give you the battery back. Literally, Clay came up to me when I was sitting at the piano about a year ago and he said, Papa, I think you should do the band. I'm good, whatever. I, I can't quite remember what it was, that he how, how he put it in his own cool way. But it was the moment where he, he gave me back the battery. So this period of writing was very intense. I also realised that I don't want to sing anyone else's songs. Um, I've been singing Dougie's and Andy's songs in the band, and they're good. They're not bad songs, they're, they're good, but I, I only want to sing my songs because I, I don't enjoy singing anyone else's songs. I'm not like a karaoke machine for other people. And I think there's an intensity for me as a writer to take the responsibility to be the writer in my band. And when it's my full responsibility, I can absolutely give it 100%. But if it's not my responsibility, if I'm sharing the the workload with everyone, I don't work. I'll work 50%. I don't work full. I don't give it everything. So it's all or nothing. I'm a very all or nothing person. And I think I'm an only child as well. So it's a bit like, this is mine, you know, which selfishly is is the other guys have to very very kindly put up with but so yeah that was another thing that happened i said look i'm not i just want to sing my own song so when everyone was cool with that that's when i I just got my head down i can't release a record unless it's one of the best records we've ever made and the only way to get 10 songs is just to write hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs until you get 10.
0: In your press release, it says uh, 10 songs is a record about the way life comes at love and what love does to weather those challenges. Any quotes waving at the window mm. about um, this is no rehearsal. This is the take yeah. promises you once kept uh, going to break. So for me, when I first heard that, I was like, is this like a breakup mm-hmm. album? Um, and then. A million hearts, there's a lot about letting go of you is tearing me Mm -hmm. apart. You know, if it wasn't Mm -hmm. a breakup album, Mm -hmm. it was like an album of. Two people who've been at it for a long time—you've you have kids, and when you've kids, somebody takes a back seat somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think with Valentine as well, there was a uh, plate once and and for all time, mm-hmm. like you did when you were mine. And I was just like, what is going on here? You know, this is a this is this is a couple that like mm-hmm. are just trying very desperately to come to terms with all this time and like were they fully awake or, or how do we save this and make it work? Was that what you were doing on the album?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, there's, there's lots of stuff going on on the record, a lot of which is on the record. The whole thing is mm-hmm. you go through all these emotional things. They're very personal, emotional feelings with people. You know how it feels when you're you know, in any relationship for a long period of time. And it's not just my wife. I'm also married to three other people. This is the thing that people forget. This, these relationships are not like uh, classic two-people relationships. I have relationships with everyone. So I'm talking about a lot of things here. And um, is a breakup record? I don't know. If it sounds like that to you, then maybe that's what it is. I'm not going to sit and say, oh yeah, it's a a breakup record. But everything, I put everything, everything is in this album. Because sometimes you can't put things into words, so you have to sing them. Because they sound better. Because you, you can express yourself better. There's moments in your life where you want to give up there's moments in your life where you feel that you can't carry on and you have to pick yourself up and start again and go for it and that's just part of this record what i will say is it's been a very very emotional time and this record has distilled every bit of that into songs
0: The best Travis songs are the ones where you understand the sentiment so effortlessly. It's a beautiful waltz between melody and the simplest turn of phrase that touches on a larger truth. Nina's song was also very personal. Writing it became an exorcism for Fran, of that longing for a father he never had. Who is Nina? And is that a Tibetan bell at the start? That ding...
2: Yes, it's in the middle of it. When the guitar starts to play, that bell rings. And I was testing it at the beginning of the song to see if the signal was working on the recorder. And, um, and it was, but it sounded kind of like as a, a meditation bell or something. It, it, it kind of pings you. Uh, Nina is a, a, an author. Uh, her name is Nina Stibby. She's the author of this book called Man at the Helm. And I was asked to mm-hmm. uh, write songs for an adaptation of this book. And the book is about two young girls and their little brother who set themselves the task of finding their mum a new dad. And I loved the idea of this because that's mm-hmm. exactly what I wanted to do when I was 9, 10, 11, 12 years old. There would be nothing I would want more than a, to have a dad. When I was like 7, I thought there was a dad shop. That you could go and get one. Wow. That's how desperate I was for you know for, for that that person. So that song is again it's like distilled this all of these feelings that have been bottled up inside of me. And this is a brilliant thing about songs and writing songs, is that you can have all this longing and, and need, and I still have a need. i still oh God, I would love to have a dad, but I'll never have a dad. Ever.
0: While there is a familiar melancholy here, and perhaps it's a little darker than more recent Travis albums, there is also a lightness, and it comes in the form of a duet, an unexpected treat for Fran or anyone who grew up with the nostalgia of Walk Like an Egyptian and Eternal Flame. thing which features Susanna Haas from the Bangles I understand you guys met on Twitter how very modern <laughs> but what was the process like when it came to actually writing the song is it you know you both live in LA now is it as simple as just you know coming over having a writing sesh or did you just have a mm-hmm. different way of songwriting or did you just give her the words the
2: song was written I met Susanna on on Twitter she posted a video of her singing Eternal Flame And it wasn't an old video, it was something that was quite new, it was quite like a a recent thing. And I wrote, oh, that's really cool, Um, really love your voice, it's so great. But I I was writing with uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people, even comments, maybe about 700 people. And two weeks later I was back on Twitter and she left a message for me saying... Oh, I love your voice too. Like we, me, me and my husband, we listened to Travis like when we were taking our kids to school. We were big fans, blah, blah. blah. And I was like, oh my God, screen grab, screen grab. <laughs> Sending all my friends like, check this, Susanna <laughs> um And then I PM'd her and said, look, if you're ever playing any shows, just let me know and I'd love to come and see. And that was that for a year and a half. And then I wrote this song. And, or I had an idea of, it would be nice to have a duet, it would be a nice flavour in the album. Who will I do it with? Oh my god, Susanna Hoffs. No, she would never do it. What, she's like, she would just never do it. But I have to ask, so I asked. And she loved the song. Um, and weirdly it was A Million Hearts I sent her at first, because that was the one that was near completion. And she's like, oh my god, I love this song, it's so beautiful. Um, As soon as I sent her it, I was like, oh, it's not the right song. So we met and we had a lovely meeting. We just hung out, drank lots of coffee and and (laughs) ate lots of biscuits. I told her at the end, I said, look, I don't think this song is the right song. And she's like, no, it's fine. Just whatever. I'll sing anything. So I was like, well, let me demo up this song and send you the demo and see if you like it. So I did that and she really liked the song in amongst this time when we were sort of meeting up and hanging out and talking about stuff, she invited me to um, she has these things called music nights round at her house and I went round and um, it was amazing, it was uh, lots of musicians come and they sing and everyone comes and has a drink and has a sing song around the, around the mic and there was Billy Steinberg who sung True Colours, his, oh, wow. his song his song um, he also lo- wrote Like a Virgin, um, and he also wrote that song, I Touch Myself, I Want You to Touch Me. Yes. He sung at that. That night. Yeah, he's an old man now, you know, he's in his 70s, and he's just this old guy singing, I Touch Myself, I Want You to Touch Me. It was really sweet. Uh, and she got up and sung Eternal Flame, and I went up and sung Driftwood. Tim Finn was up. To sing uh, the weather with you, and I, and I got up and sung that with him. Did the harmonies on the on the verse, which was a thrill. She she has these music nights that were that were really um pretty like incredible. And um, I went to to that, and then after that, we we recorded her, um we recorded her song. Susanna's voice to me is like a time machine. When I hear Susanna's voice. I'm transported to a time where life was simpler, where I was happier. Um, probably because life was simpler. Oh. Um, I know I was 12, 13, 14 years old, and that you know, Manic Monday was on the radio, and that voice is so—it's like a, a just a little switch. And on her song, I think her voice sounds somehow better to me than it, than, it, than it used to. There's another layer there. The only thing I can put that down to is it's not a sonic thing, it's something else. It's this thing that comes with age, thing that comes when you've had experience, when you've lived a life, and you're, you've still got your singing voice. Her singing voice is still great, but it's also got this lovely timbre to it that, that, um, that it didn't have before. And, um, like, why hasn't anyone else done a duet with Susanna Hoff, because she's amazing. I think people probably thought, oh, no, she would never do that. And she never never asked her. And I was just, like, daft enough to go and ask her, you know?
1: airplanes, because you got it inside.
0: So one of my favorite songs on the album is actually Butterflies. Oh. Yeah, it's got that easy f- listening Southern California feel to me. Uh, and, um, and also, you know, someone always chasing something that they can't quite get their hands on. I mean, that's like such a universal sentiment that we all suffer from at times. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where was your head at when you you wrote that song?
2: I mean, the reason why I exist is because my my mother's brother, before my mother was born, he was chasing butterflies by the canal and he fell in and died when he was nine. That's tragic. It's total tragedy. It's like, it was a, like a, if you, you know, you go down the timeline of a family, there's like a, a nuclear mm-hmm. bomb where that happened and the fallout from which it's, it doesn't go away this is something that happened in 1945 a long time ago and we're still you know there's still little things that happen because of it so when he died like my grandfather had to come back from the war mm. to go and identify the body and do all that stuff mm. he'd spent 3 years in a prisoner of war camp then they were they were released the war had ended his son dies. My grandmother goes into a depression that she never really came out of. Ever. She was a lovely, really lovely woman, um, but she, she was just she never she never get out of the blues. Um, and why why would you? You're not going to fucking get over that. And my mum was born to take that child's place. I wouldn't be here if that boy hadn't died. But the story of the chasing butterflies is always a story of our family, and it's just words that float around in my head there's also the the idea of songwriting as being the same idea of like catching this very rare butterfly that that no one has been able to catch and you catch it and you you look at it for a little while and and then you let it go again and you maybe draw a picture of it you record it in some way and and then you set it free there's only one of these butterflies in the whole world and every songwriter, every scientist, every sportsman, every anyone that that plucks stuff out of the air is looking for that butterfly. And they, if they catch it, mm-hmm. they, they quickly draw it, you know, and then it flies away. And, and then they have to try and remember what it looked like. And that's their song, or that's their book, or that's the cure for whatever. Or that's the, you know what I mean? And yeah. this elusive butterfly that we're all trying to catch. So the, the, to me, that's sort of where butterflies is also coming from as well. And also, it, it sort of tips mm. on this feeling of um, there's a line in it. You've had, life, you've had all your life. You've had all your life to dream about it, but you never did a thing about it. This feeling in me is something that's really deep in me. That if you want to do something, do it don't beat around the bush, don't not do it because time just flies flies by and before you know it, you'll, you'll regret never mm-hmm. having done the thing that you wanted to do so there's a lot of that in it a ghost has got that feeling as well you know, You, yeah. you know hiding under your pillow while your life is passing you by, yeah. I think we're all guilty of a bit of that in our lives and some more than others because it's fucking terrifying to go out and, and follow your dreams and Try and make them a reality because mm-hmm. you're going to fail more, more, more times than others you're going to fail. But yeah. that's, that's the whole joy of being alive, right? Falling on your arse and getting back up again.
0: Talking about a ghost, it's um, uh, coming to terms with the person you see in the mirror. So for you, when you look in the mirror, who do you see? Do you see someone who's not always gone after what you're supposed to go after?
2: Mirrors are are problematic for me. I've never, I've never liked me. <laughs> I've never liked looking at me. Um, I don't see someone I, I particularly like when I look in the mirror. I grew a beard for a, for a while, a big giant beard. It was the most amazing therapy ever because I, suddenly I looked in the mirror and I liked the person I saw. I was like, oh, I like you. It was me, but it was just this other version of me that I, I But somehow there's something in this that makes me not happy, and I don't know what it is. Um, when I'm done with the band, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely grow my beard back. But who knows what goes on in your psyche, you know? All my, my life, I've always had this background radiation going on with, you know, this feeling of impending dread
0: this dread was in plain sight all along. Consider the band's name, a homage to a film in which a down-and-out but gentle man reunites with his young son and together they embark on a journey to complete their family. But Fran's songwriting isn't insular. His themes are always reaching for something grander than just his own struggles.
2: The most important element is universal truth. When you hear, why does it always rain on me? Everyone immediately goes, yes, I know that feeling. And this is controversial to say this, but I I believe that about 95% of songwriting is not creative. You're chipping away at the face of the rock, looking for the little diamond, and it takes a long time. First of all, you've got to go down and dig down deep. It's just boring, methodical, sitting down and just chipping eventually you see a little tiny tiny diamond and that's the thing that you're after you know the little glimpse of the butterfly or the all of these analogies and metaphors i've been talking about and that's the universal truth that's what you're searching for and as soon as you get the thing that five percent of the songwriting part takes over and that's the creative part that's when it goes into your brain a little bit more and you get to be a bit more like thoughtful about it but the bit before that is searching around in, in the darkness for the song, and it's the bit I absolutely hate. It's, it's the hardest part, but there's no avoiding it. I, I know why I maybe do it, because I, again, we go back to the, the not having a dad thing, that there's something missing you need to have certain validation that I didn't get and I'll never get so I'll just keep doing it like a, a demented dog just chasing its tail you're never going to catch it Franny just just calm down um, but you're like no no it's right there it's right there, it's right there. I don't want to say goodbye
0: You've been listening to Under the Radar podcast featuring Fran Healy of Travis. This episode was produced by me, Celine Teoblocki, and executive produced by Mark Redfern. Additional editing was provided by Azeen Samari. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print magazine and website founded in 2001 by Mark and Wendy Redfin. You can find us at www.undertheradarmag.com. If you can, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash under underscore the underscore radar. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Till next time.